You're listening to the Morphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Morphology Podcast. AKA Murph here to share interviews about biking experiences from cyclists who have pedaled to places all over. Each week we will get to know new people and explore new destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these adventures, you may wonder, why haven't I done that yet? Becky Feruda is on the podcast this week. This busy mother of two currently juggles being a pro cycling athlete for Team Noro Nordisk and a diabetes ambassador. And when she's not racing her bike, Feruda is caring for her children and serving as the owner and sports vision specialist in Golden, Colorado, and owner and co-founder of a private label eyewear company. She holds a master's degree in public health policy from the University of Colorado and works as a consultant on childhood anti-obesity and public health campaigns. In 2017, Feruda won the Colorado State Time Trial Championship, setting a new course record. And in 2018, she finished sixth at the Women's Professional Criterium at Colorado Classic. She has an inspiring story on how she got to where she is today. So here's my interview with Becky. And action. All right. Well, on the podcast today, we have Becky Feruda. Hey, Becky. Hey, how are you? I am good. So here we are coming to you live. Well, we're recording this live. It, I mean, actually, we'll edit all the bad parts out. But we are coming to the listeners from Coralville, Iowa, which is not where you're from, right? No, I'm not from Iowa. Okay. She is not from Iowa. I am from Iowa. Listeners already know that. But the reason that you're here is because we have been at a amazing cycle cross event all weekend called Jingle Cross or UCI World Cup. So what was your experience there? Did you like it? Like, I mean, it was amazing. I think Jingle Cross is a unique event in cyclocross racing yeah. because they throw everything into that race. Yes. A lot of cyclocross races have technical features and this race really has everything. It's got a sand pit. It's got a mud pit. It's got a run up. Yeah. It's got you know the railroad ties. It's it's and the huge Mount Crumpet. The they huge call it. Mount Crumpet, and then it's got a ton of community involvement, and yeah. people are supportive of the race, and it it was a fantastic experience, and they attract truly the best riders in the world, world class. Yeah, yeah. It, it was amazing. It was so cool. Yeah, and then on top of that. You know, there's gravel everywhere. So we are sitting in a hotel lobby. So you may hear some background noise, but we're, all of us are full of grit and sweat and all the things. And I should point out, we're also uh, drinking Prosecco. Yes. Out of a styrofoam cup. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So Becky and I have spent the weekend together. So now, now we're besties just drinking out of styrofoam cups. Just having a good time in Iowa. (laughs) Yeah. And I should mention, you know, we're, uh, we talked about being at Jingle Cross and UCI World Cup, but you yourself are a pro cyclist, and you were able to do a race this weekend. I did. I did the gravel race for Jingle Cross, which is the inaugural race. They've never done a gravel event here before. And, um, I, you know, it was kind of difficult for them to plan the route, because mm-hmm. one thing about gravel 
is it's only gravel if it's dry. And if you get a lot of rain, it quickly becomes mud, which is a very different riding condition. And they had more rain in 48 hours in Iowa City than they had in the prior six months. So they kept having to redraw that course map and Mm -hmm. redo those course lines. They had some construction that popped up at the last moment. So we didn't actually get the course profile until 10 o'clock the night before. Oh, man. And yeah, it's really hard to plan for what that race is going to look like. They didn't have any elevation for us, so we had no idea how much we'd be climbing. But it was a a super fun event. Um, We had a great time. Again, attracted a lot of really strong riders. I was riding with Kristen Lagan for a while, who is really well known in gravel cycling and has a lot of you know good good races behind her belt and usually really good results and so it was it was a tough day but it was a lot of fun yeah and I thought it was funny um, after you got done with your race you know we're sitting at our booth talking and you said something about you know oh, I think so, they said the elevation was going to be whatever 1500 or 1400 yeah and tell the listeners what the elevation so really they estimated it <laughs> at 1730 I think okay. which for 70 miles is nothing that's actually right. a pretty flat course and yeah. so I was excited because I don't climb well <laughs> and my final elevation was just under 5,000 feet that is not cool yeah it was a little <laughs> off it was a little off and actually it was funny because while I was riding it you know Colorado climbing is a little different. We have these kind of steady low grades, like mm. two and a half, three and a half percent. This was really punchy climbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, you know, nine, 10 percent grades in there. They're shorter, but but they're harder. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm just not used to this kind of climbing. Maybe it's more to do with the type of climbing mm-hmm. I'm doing. But this feels like a lot more than 1,700 <laughs> feet. And when I got done, I was like, yeah, that was that was quite quite a difference. <laughs> 5,000 is a lot of, dif- you know, it that's was a, lot. a huge difference, yeah. especially, you know, you're not doing 300 miles. No, right. no, it was, it was 70 miles and um, over, you know, gravel roads, pea gravel, you know, again, like in Colorado. And gravel is interesting because gravel racing is really anything that's not tarmac. Yeah. Um, and so it was a lot of pea gravel, not this nice, slick, clean dirt mm-hmm. that I'm used to. And then we went off on these B roads and we don't have B roads from from where I'm from. So I didn't know what that meant at the start. And I quickly learned that that is just basically an unmaintained farm (laughs) road. And those, they had told us at the start line, were almost impassable by bike. And that was not an exaggeration. Those were some crazy, crazy roads. But... We all got through it. It was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was challenging. It was definitely, yeah. you know, they said at the start, this is going to be a hard course, and they weren't kidding. It, it definitely, I mean, Jingle Cross, everything about Jingle Cross is hard, and it mm-hmm. totally lived up to the expectations. Awesome, awesome. And were you happy with finishing, how you finished, and all that good stuff? Yeah, so I finally, I, I got the results today. Oh, and good. I was in fifth in the women's elite field, which is great. That that's is a, awesome. That's a good result for that much climbing. Yeah, yeah that is awesome. Very awesome. Okay, so you mentioned elite, and I alluded a little bit to the fact that you have been a pro cyclist for a long time. Do you want to get into that? Like, how did you go from, well, I don't know what your, um, you know, childhood in high school, but most people have a bike when they're in high school, and then life changes. They either go to school or they move out of their parents' house, and then there's no biking until you're a grown-up. So what's your story? A quick interruption to give a shout out to Primal Wear. Cycling is their passion and apparel is their craft. So if you're in the market for a new jersey, bibs, mask, or any cycling apparel, go to primalwear.com and use code PRIMALMURF to get 20% off your purchase. Yes, 20% off. Now back to the show. 
So I did not set out in life to be a professional cyclist. Yeah. In fact, I'd never watched a professional bike race. I'm not even sure I was aware that professional cycling was a thing. Oh. You know, it's not it's not a big sport in America. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I probably, as a teenager, had heard of the Tour de France, but I mm -hmm. certainly had never seen it, even on television. So it was something that was really distanced from me. I grew up in this old Victorian farmhouse just outside of Boulder, Colorado. Oh, nice. And my dad was a tax attorney. My mom was a high school English teacher. And they were fairly well off. Um, and I think from the outside looking in, it looked like this kind of idyllic, you know, great family environment. Internally, there's actually quite a bit of strife. My dad was kind of a volatile guy. Mm -hmm. He had a, a notoriously bad temper. None of us were very close with him. My mother got pregnant with my youngest sister when she was 48 years old. And my mother had been actually morbidly obese her entire life. Um, the earliest photos I have of my mother are at age two and three. And she was already, by any standard definition, clinically obese at that oh, point wow. in her life. Mm -hmm. And that really shaped her personality. It made her, she was very ashamed of her size. And I think a lot of women actually feel that kind of discomfort mm -hmm. with their bodies. And she felt judged by that. And it, it made her very anxious. It made her really introverted. Um, and, you know, it, it really... I, you know, as a kid, I can remember her doing all these crazy crash diets. Like she did like the cabbage soup diet in the 80s. And all, <laughs> right. I mean, all these like crazy things to try and lose weight. And she could just never maintain it. So by the time she became pregnant at 48, she was very large. She had all of the classic kind of comorbidities that you see. She had hypertension. She had high cholesterol. She actually had type 2 diabetes, but it had gone undiagnosed until pregnancy. Oh, wow. And her blood sugar was largely out of control. And so it became a very complicated pregnancy very quickly. And they thought she was 32 weeks along and decided that they needed to induce her. Mm. They took her into the hospital, did the induction. She almost did not survive. Wow. And my youngest sister was actually delivered at about a pound and a half. Oh, so wow. she was she was much, much earlier than what they had expected. Um, but again, it was hard to you know, guess the gestational age of the baby because of all my mother's other health considerations. So they took my youngest sister by helicopter to Children's Hospital in Denver. Mm. Um, my mom remained in the hospital for some time and continued to actually deteriorate. My father ultimately took her to the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. My dad at the time did not have health insurance because this is pre-ACA. So my mom, because of all of her pre-existing conditions, was not able to get insurance in the oh, United man. States. So my father had to pay all of those medical bills out of pocket, and it was millions of, millions of dollars. Um, you know, a baby in a neonatal intensive care mm -hmm. unit for a month, and my mother in, in the Mayo Clinic for a month, it, it racked up pretty quickly. And so my father lost everything overnight. Mm. He lost his business, he lost his house, his life savings, he lost his, you know, cars, all of it. My mother ultimately was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy, which is a heart condition, um, related to elevated blood glucose for an extended time horizon. And they told her at that time she probably had five or six years to live, sent her back home. My youngest sister did survive. She's actually 27 now. She's wow, in graduate a, school at cool, NYU. Yeah, yeah and, and ended up perfectly healthy. Um, but it, it took a long time to get her there. When she came home, she was on an oxygen heart rate monitor. Mm. Um, my mom was still critically ill, so I had to get up every morning, and I'd give her this dropper of caffeine to get her heart going to make sure that her heart oh didn't gosh. stop. 
And while my mom was hospitalized for a while, I was in a hotel room in Scottsdale, Arizona with this infant on a heart rate monitor, my seven-year-old sister. My older sister was off in Europe. And um, I remember being really terrified that if the baby, if something happened with my baby sister, that I would be blamed. It was a really tough time. My dad ultimately decided that the best hope to recover us financially was for him to move to the Western Slope of Colorado, find a job, get settled, and we would just wait until the bank came and seized the house. And so we did. We stayed in this Victorian farmhouse until... The bank showed up and put padlocks on the door. We got in the cars, and we drove to meet my dad. And I actually did not understand we were homeless. I did not get that until we showed up at the motel. And it was the Will Rogers Motel, which is this teeny tiny motel between Montrose and Ridgeway, Colorado. Um, It had bars on the windows. It was, you know, one room, two beds, little tiny kitchenette next to a checks cashed place and a truck stop. Um, not, not a great place to be. <laughs> Definitely different from this Victorian farmhouse I'd grown up in. And I remember sitting down on the bed and there was no box spring. You know, it's just this thin mattress on a wire frame. And I will tell you, as an adult, I have never gone into a hotel room and not laid down Check in a hotel bed. bed and thought, I'm glad this has a box spring. Because it was, it was awful. It was, it was so hard to sleep there. And... My mom was really depressed. You know, my older sister was really depressed. My father chose not to enroll us in school Mm. um, because he didn't know if he would ultimately settle there. And so for six months, you know, that's that was what my world looked like. like. That was life. Every day you're in a hotel and lots all the whole families in there with all of these people in crisis. And I just couldn't take it. And uh, I was 15, 16 years old. And I had an old Huffy mountain bike that my dad had bought me when I was in the fourth grade. And by day two, I got up in the morning and got on that Huffy mountain bike and just started riding. I would just point it in a direction and go. And I was in no hurry to come home because there was nothing to come back to. <laughs> right. And so I would just ride. And the thing about Western Slope of Colorado is it's, it's just amazingly beautiful. Um, it's got the Dallas Divide. I rode as a kid what they call the Million Dollar Highway, which is this tiny, thin strip of tarmac. And it drops off to about 10,000 feet on either side. And I later learned as an adult, I was flipping through Outside Magazine probably probably five, six years ago. It's one of the top 10 most dangerous roads in the world. Oh, but I had and no you're idea. doing it as a teenager. Yeah, just out there riding my bike. And I would ride up. They grow all these stone fruits for fruit wine, cherries and peaches and things like that. So I'd ride up to these mesas and I would steal fruit off of the trees <laughs> and shove it in my pockets. And I'd ride my bike and eat fruit. And, and I did that every day for six months. And I just fell in love with it. I... What had started off as a crisis became this just amazing adventure on a bicycle. And that that was where I felt most at home. Yeah. It was where I was happiest. I felt empowered. Things would go wrong. You know, you, you learn to wrap a spoke. You learn to mm-hmm. change a tire. And, and that is empowering. You learn to manage all of these little crises that arise. And you actually figure out you don't need other people to do that. And at this point in my life where I had these major crises, that was actually a really reassuring thing. And I just never stopped riding. I, I didn't get a driver's license until I was 27. Mm. Um, I probably should not have one now. I'm a terrible driver. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's just what I did. And I, I biked my way through college. I ended up going to school in part on a cycling scholarship. 
Oh, nice. Um, okay. You know, started. So obviously, besides the fact that you were using biking as like therapy for yourself and you were empowering yourself, you obviously were good at it if you ended up getting a scholarship. I was. The first time I learned to race was at the University of Colorado Boulder, which is where my master's degree is from. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I was, I was, you know, started off on like an academic scholarship and eventually earned my way into a, a full cycling scholarship. But when I when I first started, I was just doing the intramural cycling team, still with the same bike I had in the fourth grade. I mean, it was that the, Huffy. The Huffy? The Huffy from my fourth grade. Because I didn't it have any weight means. as much as you did. Yeah, my power to weight ratio was really bad. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have anything else, you know, so I had this Huffy mountain bike. And and they, someone said, you're really good. If you had a real bike, yeah. you know, you could really race and do well. But, you know, a race bike was just unobtainable. I, I just didn't, I could barely pay for college, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, a bicycle. So... I would borrow bikes and I, you know, no one wants to give you their $10,000 carbon fiber race bike. Right. So I would get these old steel bikes. They were oftentimes the wrong size, you know, different geometry, not set up for me. And I would show up at the start line with kit that didn't match. And, you know, you can see people looking around, sizing up the other oh, riders sure. and everyone would look at me and be like, well, we don't have to worry about her. You know, she's she's going to be off the you're bat. like, watch me. And you I, watch. I would just bury myself. I would just go and I would bury myself and I would I would win the race and consistently was winning. Eventually got the cycling scholarship, still raced on borrowed bikes until 2005 when I graduated from the University of Colorado. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was offered my first sponsorship. And that was with Title IX Women's Racing. I got a bike, I got a kit, I got all the equipment, and I thought, I have made it. You're like, yes. I've gotten there. This is it. And um, I raced for them for a few years and then went out on a training ride one day, thought, thought I was doing okay, thought I felt pretty good, but I could not keep up. Mm. And I kept dropping off the back. I felt terrible about halfway through. I mean, I felt physically sick. And I went home and I filled up a water bottle, drank an entire bottle of water, like 20 ounces of water, filled up another water bottle, drank that. I was filling that water bottle up for the third time. And you should know here that my degree is in public health. Um, And I immediately realized that something's wrong. Something's wrong. People don't drink that much water. And I knew. I knew I had diabetes. Mm. And so I called my doctor. I was also pregnant. Um, my, My husband and I were expecting our second child. And so... I called my doctor and said, oh, I think I have, I think I have pregnancy-induced diabetes. And it turned out that I had type 1. Wow. Yeah. So was it the same thing that it had been happening for a while and you didn't know? Or was that kind of the catalyst? I mean, I think it was, you know, in retrospect. I mean, it's hard because I was pregnant. And so yes. many things are going on in pregnancy. Sure, you know, sure. I've, I was peeing all the time, but you're pregnant. I was tired all the time, but you're pregnant. So a lot of the symptoms are kind of masked. And I was really active. So I was probably keeping my blood sugar, you know, low, which is good, which is healthier, just through activity until mm-hmm. eventually my body just wasn't making enough insulin to even even keep that as an effective management tool. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, I, I think it became more pronounced. But yeah, I, I didn't tell anyone for a long time. I was like a closet diabetic for uh, a long time, mostly because I just felt I didn't want to be stigmatized. You know, I'd grown up. Yeah. I mean, I'd grown up in poverty, which was stigmatizing. I was the same kid when I lived in this beautiful Victorian farmhouse that I was when I lived in the Will Rogers Motel. Mm-hmm. But the way people treated me, the stories they told me about who I was and what I could do and who I could become, they were very different all mm. of a sudden. And I just didn't want to tackle anything else that I felt like was going to be stigmatizing. Um, and 
I, I really was afraid of losing that cycling contract. And ultimately I did. Ultimately when I made that disclosure, they felt like I was a liability and chose not oh. to renew the contract. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is tough. That was tough. Wow. But we both know that it turned into an amazing opportunity if it, you want to go into... It turned out better than I ever could have expected. Yeah. I, I actually, after I was diagnosed, I went to my first doctor and asked her how I could continue racing. And she told me I could not. Um, she said, really? she, she was like, your professional cycling career is done. There is absolutely no way you can do this. She suggested I take up Tai Chi. And if you know me, I am not someone who should take up Tai Chi. <laughs> I, I don't have that. I, no one would describe me as like calm and methodical. And so it, I was like, no, I don't. I, I'm not sure that's a fit. I actually fired her on the spot. I was like, you know what? Our, our goals don't align. I'm, right. I'm going to find somebody <laughs> Somebody, somebody who tells me I can continue <laughs> being a professional somebody cyclist. Somebody who can work this out. And I did. I, I actually found a fantastic doctor in Denver, got me through the whole pregnancy, encouraged me to keep riding. He's like, it's great for you. It's great for your baby. Um, you know, my daughter was healthy at birth. She was totally, because a lot of times if, if you have diabetes during pregnancy, you can, one of the risk factors, have a very large baby. Mm. My daughter was seven pounds, eight ounces, like perfectly average size, totally healthy at delivery. She is now no longer average size. She is uh, 13 and six feet tall. Oh, <laughs> but I, I don't think that is in any way related to type 1 diabetes. So that all turned out. And I was released from my contract. Um, and, you know, I took a couple years off anyway. I mean, I had a two-year-old. I was going to say you had two small children yeah, at the time. Yeah, I had a two-year-old son at home and a, a one-year-old daughter. And actually, in that window, our son had been diagnosed with autism. So we mm. had a lot going on. Sure. Um, and then, you know... I. I started kind of missing. I was still riding. Mm -hmm. Both my husband and I have, have always ridden bikes. And, you know, we'd load the kids up in the Burley trailer and ride with them. And I, I wanted to go back mm -hmm. to racing. And so I was in my endocrinologist's office thumbing through this magazine. And I see this article about a team who at that time had 17 riders, six with type 1 diabetes. And I was like, this is great. You know, I, I need to reach out to these guys and see what they're doing. And so I did. I sent them a nice little letter, like, asking how they were managing during races and if I could talk to one of their riders. And they came back and said, you know, why don't you send us some information about your racing? And so I did. And they returned with, we want to offer you the opportunity to Whoa. come to team training camp next month in wow. Tucson, Arizona. And this was in October. And training camp was in November. And I said, absolutely, I'm there. Let's do this. And then I went home and told my husband <laughs> that I had returned to, to cycling and he was going to, you know, be left with these two young kids. But he's always been totally supportive. Um, I have to say, I, I've been in this sport for a long, long time. And I, I won the lottery when I married my husband. He, he is great. And so I did. I showed up at team training camp and um, raced that year with Team Type 1. And then a year later, the sponsorship changed. Uh, Novo Nordisk, which is a global leader, leader in diabetes management, came mm. up and said, we want to take over the sponsorship. But the contingency is every rider has to have type 1 diabetes. Oh, wow. And I, that was my reaction. I remember hearing that and thinking there's no possible way. We cannot find enough talented riders wow. with this condition, mm -hmm. You know, people with the genetic predisposition to race at this level. Well, especially if their doctors right. told them what they your first doctor yeah. told you and then they j didn't get a second and opinion. a lot of them you know if they're diagnosed while they're racing they're going to be released from contract mm -hmm. and there's actually a few riders on our team who have had that same experience wow. so I, like I I thought it was just absolutely unobtainable that was 10 years ago um team Nova oh, Nordisk wow. still exists we are the world's first professional all diabetes professional yeah. cycling team yeah um 
and and all of the riders have type one diabetes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 been an incredible journey. You know, one of my favorite stories actually of the team is my teammate David Lozano was doing tour of Rwanda. And the day before the Queen stage, they were listening to the radio and the commentators were talking about how we were a charity team and, you know, the, the riders all had type one, but it was really just for show and that oh. we weren't competitors in any true sense. And it just lit this fire in David and he <laughs> got out there and raced the, just the race of his life. And when you see the finish line photos... David is soloing his way to a win in this race, and you cannot even see anyone behind him. He is so far ahead. Wow. And, I mean, it's just incredible what we've, we've been able to do. And I think, you know, one of, I mean, this is sort of the story of my life. A lot of people believed in me and in these big ideas, even when I wasn't sold on it myself. Oh, wow. And I yeah. think that that really is the lesson of Novo Nordis. They believed in what we could do, even if we weren't 100% sure it was mm -hmm. going to be possible. Wow, that is such a great story. And didn't you tell me there's very few women on the team? There are. We, yeah, I mean, we've had kind of, you know, fluctuating numbers, but it's, it's hard. I mean, it's so hard. Women represent such a small part of cycling, right. which is something that I would really like to change. And I think there's a lot of good work to that end. But mm -hmm. in, in the United States, only about 10% of, of USA cycling licenses are issued to women. Oh. So, you know to find that pool of riders and then the group within them that have type one diabetes and then the group within that that can race really at the top level mm -hmm. is very, very difficult. We have created a talent pipeline. So the team runs junior development camps every year in Athens, Georgia, mm. and they go out into the world and recruit young people from truly every country. And they recruit men and women equally. There's no gender bias. Mm -hmm. Bring those who, who seem to have the ability and the desire to Athens, Georgia. We have them work with our coaching staff, with our certified diabetes educators, with our medical staff, with our trainers. We do race simulations. And, and we really try to foster that development. And it's a little to no cost to the families. Mm -hmm with the aim that someday these kids could be our future writers. And we actually have several guys on the professional team today who went through that talent oh, pipeline. That's awesome. And it is very cool. And, you know, we don't group writers by gender. There's no women's, you know, the women don't go out for a ride and the men don't go out for a mm -hmm. separate ride. It is based on ability. So we, we group them entirely based on their speed and their skill sets, mm. which, I mean, even if they don't make it to the pro ranks, there's still, some of these kids come from countries where there's not a lot of equality. Yeah. There is big gender divisions for them and to be you know all of them together and have that experience creates a little bit of social change as well so right. it's, it's a really cool program wow and I didn't realize how many years you've been part of the whole pro cycling yeah, it's a, it's circuit is that this the right is, word this is how I know I'm coming up to the, the point and <laughs> I hate to retire people but wow that's a long time yeah. or I get asked that in interviews how much longer are you gonna yeah. do this and I'm like yeah it's, it's been a while it's, it's something that like we we just you know witnessed um the pro women do you call them pro women the, that did the yeah. last race yeah, today? Yeah, the World Cup race, those are all professional women. Those are it truly the top of the sport. So I don't even know if inspiring is the right word because it's nothing that I have ever had the mindset to be on like that for, what was it, 45 minutes yeah. or 50 minutes? Like, like an hour, yeah. That's crazy. And then I think of you doing that for so many years. So, I mean, I, I'll do a high five in the air to you because that's... 
mind blowing. I mean, it, but I think it speaks to how much I love it. I, you know, I think yeah, yeah. I mean, the first first race I went to with the team was this this race in Dallas, Texas, called the Matrix Challenge, and it was actually a terrible race. All of us crashed. I crashed about 500 feet out of the start line. Oh. My first race back. Um, it, it was a total fiasco of a race. But you know, I remember getting on that plane and thinking somebody is paying me to get on this airplane yeah. and go race my bike and do this thing I love. And it was just I was. I was just blown away at that moment by, like I tell people that I live my dream, but that's not actually true because it's beyond the scope of anything I ever could have imagined mm. as a kid, you know, as, as a 14-year-old kid. I used, to, I used to cut out pictures from travel magazines when I was a kid, and I would paper my walls with all these pictures of travel magazines. And, you know, I've seen those places, and wow. I've seen them from the seats yeah. of my bikes. And it's, it's just incredible to me that that's how it turned out. And I thought at that time in Dallas, Texas, I thought someday this is going to be no big deal. This is just going to be a thing I do. So I really need to appreciate this moment because someday I'm just not going to have the same sense. And I can mm. tell you it's been 11 years, and I, I every time I get on a plane have that same sense. It yeah, hasn't worn off. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to say, like, your favorite place ever is here in Iowa, riding love, gravel. No. <laughs> in. So my friend Pat Maven is here from Primal next to me. Yes. He knows. You know, we forgot to give you a shout-out, Pat. He knows. So he's here, yes. My my favorite bike event in the world. What is my favorite bike event in the world, Pat? I don't know. Maybe Ride the Rockies? No, it's it's Ragbri. Oh, oh Ragbri. And and it's because that is what cycling is supposed to be. Like, I love professional racing. Professional yeah, racing yeah. is a lot of fun, and I get to go to really cool places, and I get to do really cool things, and I get to race the fastest, truly the fastest women on the planet. Mm-hmm. But that's not the heart and soul of cycling, <laughs> you know? That's, yeah. that's not it. The heart and soul of cycling is something like Ragbri, where you have people truly from every walk of mm-hmm. life and they go into their garage and they dig out whatever bike they have mm-hmm. and they don't care if they even have a kit. You'll see these guys in jorts and t-shirts right. in the middle of the Iowa heat and <laughs> right. humidity and they are pedaling whatever bicycle they have mm-hmm. just because they love to do it. It's fun to be out there. Mm-hmm. It's fun to be with other people and and you meet the coolest people and you know, and and I, all of them are self-sufficient. You know, everybody is right. ready to go. Right. They're not. They don't start with the intention of hopping in some sag wagon. I mean, you'll see. Right. You know, you see people doing crazy stuff like duct taping their wheels or whatever they have to do to <laughs> hobble that way to the finish. And and everyone is having just the best time. Yeah. And it's about food, and it's about community, and it's about bikes, and it's just about you know people getting out of their house mm-hmm. and turning off their TV and doing something that tests their limits. In some cases, like really pushes them to their limit. Right. That's, I mean, there's some hard days in Ragbrag. Right. And and it's 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 just an amazing. That is the heart and soul of cycling. You know, I I've said it about gravel racing. One of the reasons I love gravel racing. The front of the race is a bunch of pros. You know, that's that's fun and that's great. And if you're at the front, that's that's a good sign. But but the real race is happening at the back. You know, the real race is happening in the middle and the back. And those are the people who lined up. They didn't even know if they were going to finish the day. Mm. But they're going to give it 100%. And they're going to try. And they're good people who are just, just out there just pushing themselves mm-hmm. to do something that's really challenging and really hard. And they've mm-hmm. worked toward that. Mm-hmm. And they've trained for that. I mean, that's, that's, that's cycling. You know, that's really what American yeah. bicycles are all about. Yeah, I agree. And I am one of those people. 
that will do a gravel race or a ride and be in the back. But that's where exactly what you said, you know, the sense of community, but it's also you're at a speed that you can actually have conversations with the people around you and they're not trying to race you. They're just like, we just got to get up this hill together. That's an 8% grade. We got to help each other. And where are you from? And I like your bike and all of those. And those are the people that just like Ragbri, where if you do the same ride every year, you're like, I remember you from last year. We biked together. And that's, I just love that sort of thing. So, but when we talk about, you know, how much we love Ragbri and gravel, do you have some like memorable races that you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to tell the listeners about this one. A quick interruption to tell you this week's podcast is sponsored by Lizard Lips Lip Balm. These great lip balms contain natural ingredients, come in a variety of flavors, and you can choose certified organic or balms with sun protection. Check it out at lizardlips.net. Now back to the show. Probably my most memorable race was I did an event in Taiwan, um, Mm, which is, yeah, it was incredible. And I didn't know I was going until sort of the last minute. So I had no opportunity to get, because I always get currency to the country that I'm going to, because you just never know, you know, if you're going to want to Coke at the airport or something, it's just Mm -hmm. easier with with cash versus a card. Um, And, um, you know, a lot of American bank cards don't work in Asian countries, Mm. which is definitely true in Taiwan. They, They can't take your American chip card. So I didn't have an opportunity to get currency. I show up in Taiwan with like no access to even bottled water. I can't even go in and buy a bottle of water. And, you know, no one speaks clear English. No one was there at the airport to pick me up. So I'm kind of wrestling through, just getting through the early days of the tour of Taiwan. And then um, the race starts and all of the race cards, all of the numbers, all of the information, it's all in Mandarin. They're Mandarin characters. Yeah. And so I can't read anything. There's no one there to translate. We had a girl who had come to one of our junior development camps, and she was racing with me, and her name was Pei Wen, and she did not speak a drop of English. Oh. And I, I just kind of clung to her. I just followed her around because I was like, well, she's, she's in the same kit. She'll at least get me through this. She'll mm-hmm. figure it out. And there's this moment when we were racing, and we're racing through this long, long tunnel out of uh, Tainan, and cars are coming by us at you know, 50, 60 miles an hour, they hadn't closed down the tunnel. They're inches from you. And I am, you know, a half inch from this girl that I don't even know her, and I'm riding her wheel. And you can't even communicate with her to be and like, And I can't communicate yeah. with her. And so I just have to trust that she's not going to do anything crazy, that she's not going to make any erratic moves, because if anyone would have crashed in there, of course, it would have been, it would have been a calamity. Mm-hmm. And I was so stressed and just so panicked and so frustrated and then there was this moment where I was like, you know, I just need I just need to settle in and just own this experience, right? Like I need to stop resisting <laughs> and wanting it to be a certain way right. and just just go with it. And I just settled down and I rode with her and that day was so hard and we got through it and at the finish they'd set up these tents. You know, they don't have restaurants, so they were these huge mm. tents. And they had this banquet like you would not believe. They were bringing out whole Dungeness crabs. And they were bringing out the best stir fry I've ever had in my entire life. Like these noodle dishes. And she and I just exchanged this look. Like this is one of those times where you just don't need words. Because we were both starving. And there's this amazing food. And we just both had this moment of just joy. Like diving into these plates. And for the next five days, she and I hung out every single day. Never spoke a word because... 
we couldn't speak each other's language, but got along so well. Um, I left her with my gloves and my bottle because they hadn't given her that stuff when she went to camp. And she was elated. And it was just this really cool experience. And I actually fell in love with the country. I love Taiwan. The people were incredibly friendly. It's a very safe city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tai, Tainan and Taipei are both super, super safe cities. The sponsors actually took me out to this beautiful dinner the last day that I was there at this Michelin star restaurant. Wow. It's like this dumpling platter. It was amazing. But everything about that was just a really, it's so, it's such a different race experience and mm-hmm. such a different cultural experience, but it was also just one of those times when you have to let go of expectations and just fully immerse yourself in the moment. Wow. And then in gravel racing, I did a race earlier this year that was just a, a mud fest. Um, you know, we showed up and the <laughs> race fest. the race promoter was on the verge of canceling it. And he decided that the infrastructure was there. The riders showed up. He's like, let's just do it. Let's go for it. And it was like six inches of mud. It was freezing cold. The mud was actually freezing to our bodies. It was it was just a disaster. And I slogged it out for it was they reduced the course to fifty miles because there was actually lightning and thunder. Oh and my gosh. Snow coming in. This is everything. It's got it was, everything. It was the whole deal. And it was you know, it should have been miserable, but I fell in with this group of people and we just had a great time and we rode really hard and I actually wound up winning that race. But oh, wow. I shattered my derailleur at the last 50 meters. I came around a turn I stood up to sprint and there was so much mud caked on my bike. It pulled the derailleur off and just shattered it. So at that point I had to pick up my bike, run oh, it across, run across the, the line. line? Yeah, oh it, luckily it was at the finish. Um, but yeah, and I, I finished that race just covered head to toe oh, in man. mud and freezing and exhausted. But but it was just a good time. It was just crazy conditions. I like crazy conditions. Yeah. I love epic conditions. See, I think of that as like the type two fun where I'm miserable while it's happening, which I've never experienced what you you experienced. But you're just like, this is dumb. I will never ride a bike again. I can't stand it. Blah, blah. And then, you know, by the time you like take a shower and get a good night's sleep, you're like, actually, that that was pretty cool. There's always a dark yeah. moment in every race. <laughs> yes. I always have a stretch in every single race where truly you're suffering so hard and your body hurts so bad and you're just mentally and physically over it. But I have to say like one of the things I think about my early years is that you know, I I find any amount of physical suffering more tolerable than that mental suffering. You know, oh, yeah. I, I can suffer physical things but there is a there's a threshold of like mental stress that you mm-hmm. just can't take anymore and having been there I think that physical stuff it doesn't seem so bad it seems manageable mm-hmm. so you mentioned um mental stress and that brings me to my next question which it probably was not mental stress for you but if somebody told me or somebody did tell me that you spoke at the UN yeah. And I'm going to just say, like, talk about mental stress. Like, you are, <laughs> tell us about that because yeah. I can't even envision it. So, there was this campaign to create World Bicycle Day, which is um, a, a movement that began actually with a professor at a college, I think, in Tennessee. Mm. But the UN eventually took it up and, and there became this World Bicycle Day. And so, they invited all these people to the UN, all these different organizations, people for bikes and other bike advocacy groups. And uh, myself and a couple of my teammates, and we had the opportunity to address the UN General Assembly and all of these other wow. organizations. 
Yeah, and it was it was crazy. It was um, you know you're you're walking into the United. I'm wheeling bicycles into the United Nations. That is just mind blowing. Yeah, and we had our mascot there. We have this the team mascot, which is Billy the Bull, and we have this this you know mascot at the UN, and it just seemed. It was, it was odd and it was, I mean, again, like you talk about those moments in life that are just surreal. You know, I have a lot of those moments with this team where you look around and you're like, how did I get here? You know, how did, how did the stars align for this? <laughs> and that's definitely one of those moments. Yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely feel like you've earned it. I, I mean, mean, the story that you're telling is mind-blowing in itself. You know, I think, I think the great thing about my team is that it, it isn't so much about diabetes, right? Like it's really about people have challenges mm-hmm. because we, we all have them. And it's really a story about having those obstacles and making a decision. And this is really the story of cycling. I mean, there are challenges in life you choose, like going out and doing a gravel race. Right. Or, you right. Know, and then there are challenges that you don't. And it, the question is how you approach them and mm-hmm. how you feel about them and what you do with them. And I think the story of my team is really that it's a bunch of people who had these obstacles and had these challenges and instead found ways to use them as motivating factors to mm-hmm. do something different and better and to inspire other people to do the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, my son, um, like I said, he has autism and he, he never paid too much attention to cycling, but I would catch him every once in a while Googling the team or Googling me, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing to watch your kids do. And he, he fell in love with one of our now retired riders, this guy Javier, Javier Mejias. And Javi is just a great guy, just the nicest guy you've ever met. And Javi's last race was USA Pro Challenge, the old race that used to happen in Colorado. And he's racing with Jens Voigt, who's a legend in cycling. Oh, my, yeah. And it was Javi and Jens, lap after lap on the last stage of USA Pro Challenge, the two of them neck and neck. And my little son, eight, eight nine-year-old Henry, is on the barriers, just banging on oh. those barriers, screaming for Javi. And when this race is done, the CEO of the team, Phil Sutherland, who I've known forever, and he's the best guy you could hope to know, comes up to my son, and he's trying very hard to talk to Henry because he's really... You know, he's really making an effort with this kid. And Henry, halfway through, just stops and he's like, Phil, I just want to talk to Javi. And so Phil grabs him by the hand, takes him down to the team bus, and Javier emerges with his race numbers and hands them to my son. And my son put those numbers on his backpack and rode around the, you know, the whole neighborhood with those numbers on his backpack for the longest time. And someone once asked him why he had those numbers. And he said, well, if my mom and her friends can race with diabetes, I can race a bike with autism. Wow. And that, yeah. is, and that gives me I the goosebumps. That's actually. what I mean. I think it's, it's a story really about, you know, reaching further. And, and I hope that's the message that we convey. I hope it's, it's more global than diabetes. Mm-hmm. Like diabetes definitely matters. I mean, on a personal level, very much. Right. But, but I think that everyone's going to have challenges. I work with, uh, I, you know, I also do a lot of advocacy for a group called Go for Graham, which mm. is a mental health advocacy that is all about shedding the stigma of mental health conditions. And I think, you know, everyone is going to confront something, whether it's depression or autism or diabetes or, you know, pick a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're all going to run headlong into something. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm amazed at your story and everything about you. Like, 
This is so awesome. I'm actually not that impressive. <laughs> I just kind of <laughs> hang out. I hang out in Iowa and, and ride some bikes. But I think I, I wanted to kind of ask if there's anybody you wanted to give a shout out, whether it's your team or somebody that got you into, um, you know, understanding, like maybe that doctor or somebody like that. But before we do that, I do feel like we need to give a shout out to Pat Mabin, who's sitting with we us. Do. Because he's the reason that we're even sitting here talking and yes. the reason that we were able to meet. Because... He is um, Mr. Party Pat from Primal, and uh, we both got to hang out at the Primal booth all weekend and, and just help out at uh, Jingle Cross in the UCI world. So, Pat, we need to say thank you to you. Oh, I appreciate it, Murph. I'm just, I'm also emotional hearing this story. I've heard Becky's story, bits and pieces of it before, but to hear it all knit together at the same time is really moving for me as well. And I'm blessed to know both of you. We're blessed. Too. I love Pat. I know. Pat, Pat, Pat and I have been friends for a lot of years. We've traveled together. He's been my often travel partner. <laughs> uh, and, and he puts up with every second of it just so graciously. And, uh, you know, he knows all the good places to eat because he travels. He travels the whole yeah, country. He's everywhere. He's, he is my tour guide. Every time I go anywhere, I send him a message like, okay, tell me what, what's the restaurant. And he has yet to steer me wrong, you know. Uh, awesome. My kids, my daughter once called him and asked him how to make mac and cheese when she was home alone. Aww. You know, they know him as Uncle Pat. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. She called him on his birthday to wish Uncle Pat a happy birthday. You know, <laughs> awesome. but that, I mean, that's, but that's cycling, right? Like that's right. cycling and that's the community. My kids, you know, my kids have grown up in this community and you know, my daughter, my six foot tall daughter has this amazing sense of self and mm -hmm. she doesn't have the kind of body consciousness that you see with 13 year old girls. Mm -hmm. And people always ask me what I did. And I was like, I, I raised her in cycling. She's seen people of every body type do incredible things. Mm -hmm. She's got all these wonderfully supportive people around her. And, you know, she's not really focused on an aesthetic. She sees what what human beings can do athletically and and that's really I mean she's more interested in how fast she can run or how fast she can ride her bike than than you know how long her legs are how tall <laughs> she is and it's it's great it's fantastic and I think um you know I think that that that's really like the cycling community is just a, a really healthy yeah sort of vibrant place with a lot of great people yeah and I think that there's really no end in sight you know what I mean? Like sometimes when you have the pro racers that are really popular, you know, something as they, you know, age out or something like that. But there's always somebody behind. And it's kind of like your point about your organization, um, your team is grooming younger riders so that hopefully there is cycling to continue. This weekend, the high five I gave uh, as, as he was coming across the line was to gauge Hecht who I knew Gage when he was 12 years old. Mm. You know, he and I would show up at races, and he was this, you know, junior rider on junior gears wow. on a kid's bike, warming up on a trainer with his dad. And he is on his way to Rally Pro Cycling next season. And, I mean, it's it's unreal to watch these kids come yeah. through the ranks and, and grow up. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's oh, just amazing. Awesome. Pat's showing us a photo of you giving a high five. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. But yeah, there's always someone behind. I mean, it's, and it's, that I think is actually the cool thing about having done this so long is mm. that I get to see those kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and anybody you want to give a shout out to, whether it's a team or a person before we close this out? You know, there are a lot of people who have opened doors for me. There are a lot of people who have given me some incredible opportunities. Uh, Dave Edwards at Primal has, has certainly worked hard to open doors for me. And we've talked about 
maybe doing some work in women's development. And you have to be careful what you say around Dave because you mentioned that and he's like full on ready to go, like ready to do it tomorrow. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, we got to make a plan. But he, you know, he's he's been, you know, just a, a great supporter of myself and actually of, of a lot of really important organizations too. That Primal Wear does a lot of great work in, mm-hmm. in the cycling space. Um, and then, you know, Phil Sutherland, the CEO of Team Nova Nordisk, Phil has opened doors not just for me, but for a lot of people. There was a moment at team training camp last year where we were all sitting around talking about how we ended up with the team. And all of it really boiled down to Phil Sutherland and, mm. and, and what that organization has given to all of us and to our families is, is really hard to imagine. I mean, it's just an incredible opportunity. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, um, diabetes is truly the greatest thing that ever happened to me, which wow. is a weird thing Isn't to say. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And, and that is all credit to Phil Sutherland, who is just an amazing person and continues to do really, really great things for uh, diabetes and for cycling and, and just in his own community. He is a, an incredibly generous person. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I've had a lot. I mean, you know, I, I got here because a lot of people threw open the doors to opportunity. Mm-hmm. And had they not, I, I would not have made it. And I, I am truly, I think about those people all the time. Mm-hmm. But truly, it had to come back to the persona, the psyche that you present. I mean, the energy that you give out, people want to make changes and help you so that it's, it's right I mean, right back at you. Well, and I hope I'm doing it for someone else. I hope I'm opening those doors for all the people behind me, right? I mean, I think that's what, I think that should be all of our role. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, Becky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, you know, we've already thanked Pat for uh, allowing us to meet this weekend and work hard at Jingle Cross and get full of gravel and have fun and sell a lot of puzzles. But anyway, thank you so much. Thank you for spending four full days with me (laughs) and now uh we we're out of prosecco so we might have to switch to something else i guess but anyway thank you so much Well, listeners, that's it for this week. Thanks, Becky, for taking the time to chat. And a huge thanks to Primalware and Pat Mabin for connecting us while we were at the UCI World Cup in Iowa City. Becky is someone I am so happy to have met www.teamnoronordisk.com is the website to learn more about Becky or follow her at girls to the front on Instagram. Email me at morphologypodcast at gmail.com if you have a topic or the name of a cyclist you find interesting. Support my podcast at patreon.com slash morphology. Visit my Instagram page for daily entertainment and check out my website for all kinds of bicycle stuff. And a quick shout out to Simmons Electric for sponsoring this podcast. I'll leave you with this quote from the unwritten book of morphology. This quote comes from Simone Biles. I'd rather regret the risk that didn't work out than the chances I didn't take at all. Think about it.